Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas with Bela and Mike. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the recently retired, I'm going to keep saying it, recently retired, David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences, and I will not... I will continue to remind you, Bela, not retired. <laughs> excellent, Mike. Excellent. So first, thanks again to all of you for joining us and welcome to new listeners. Um, we hope you enjoy listening to our podcast adventure today as much as we enjoy creating it. Um, just a little reminder of why we do this. Um, we really, both of us, share this passion to learn from smart and interesting people. Um, we're curious as to see how the world is changing. We're curious to learn about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. And we like to overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've each learned over 30-plus years as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people that we've met more recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. So today's guest is Toby Solinay. She is the founder of First Playable Productions, where they develop interactive computer games to educate, transform, and change minds. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, this uh, session was recorded live at a monthly entrepreneurial speaker event that I co-host with Rick DeRico in Schenectady, New York. Rick and I interviewed Toby in a large room with 100 attendees. So please forgive us for the sound quality. It's not up to our normal standards. But it was a great uh, conversation, and I thought Toby made some excellent, excellent points doing our, during our interview. So, Mike, what's uh, one of the things that struck you about uh, Toby's uh, comments? Well, just in general, a cool example of a business where social mission and profit goals intersect to such an extent that you can't really see where one ends and one the begin and the other begins. So I really like the way that works for her. And uh, gosh, what a great business philosophy and a you know really cool list of I don't know if you want to call them clients or partners that she's uh, managed to develop. So just all kind of cool things in a in a tough market. You know, when your target market is kids, and maybe we can talk about this after the interview. I think it's it's kind of interesting. And uh, so yeah, I mean, just really interesting stuff, an interesting business model, interesting person. Yeah. So let's uh, jump right into the interview. Uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Here we go. So, um, for starters, just tell me a little bit about the company. What, what does First Playable Productions do, and um, how long have you been in business? Stuff like that. Some of the titles. I'm feeling very nostalgic, because Rick is probably the first reporter I ever talked to about my company 14 years ago, so it's uh, great to be back here. And, back and here you're still talking you. to me, so that's know, a good sign. I so. know. So, uh, my company, First Playable Productions, we make video games. We make games for top brands like uh, Club Penguin, um, Cooking Mama, um, we also did Puzzle Quest, which if you're a gamer, you would recognize that name. Um, so we do games that are entertainment games, working with, again, Disney, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network tend to be the partners we work with. Um, and then the other half of what I do is take game technology and try to apply it for other purposes in addition to entertainment. So that would be education, which I was first inspired by. And then I've learned, well, you can also apply it to healthcare and wellness, and a lot of other applications out there as it goes into further industries. So we try to span both markets and be a knowledge transfer from the entertainment game space into these other applications. And that was right from the start. That was part of yes. your vision. You did not want to get into 
a certain type of genre of games. Yes, I had uh, my. I originally started out. My first career was at GE Research. I'm a technologist. I'm an electrical engineer. So. It's a PhD. This is the third <laughs> PhD we've had speaking. It's a little intense. Yes. Yes. That's I, why I wore the bow tie. <laughs> and uh, and games do use electricity, so I am using my electrical engineering <laughs> degree. But um, I, I started out in research, and I joined the video game industry with Vicarious Visions, which was a very small startup company at the time, bringing process and project management to them and learning about the game industry because I hadn't played games other than Pac-Man and Burger Time, I think, in college. And uh, and so my first year was just the homework of learning about games, but what I also learned is how much kids are inspired by games. We would have kids come to the office, I would go talk to schools, and they're way more interested in games than they were about um, technology. When I would go and talk to them about communication networks and other things that I was doing at GE, I could instantly see that like, I'd stepped up onto a soap soapbox of sorts, where kids would listen and pay attention. I also was learning that everything you learn in school, you have to use to make a game. You have to use math. You have to use science. You use English. You, you use social studies, right? There's a social context and history involved. And even in that first year, I became inspired that you could use games as kind of the carrot to get kids to learn stuff that's going to be useful in other things. They're not all going to be video game designers, but if it can get them through the boring parts of school, it'd be a huge benefit. So I was inspired by that when Activision bought that company. When I was deciding what to do, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I had learned that most game developers don't want to make children's games. They see that as um, a necessary stepping stone, not really what they want to do. Um, I thought maybe it's because I was a mom. I thought Games for Kids was fantastic and <laughs> exactly what I wanted to do. When I started First Playable, I found out a lot of kids come out of college also want to do games for kids and do educational games. Um, there's just not that many opportunities. So it wasn't just that I was over 40 that <laughs> I did a cool thing. It was actually a whole set of people that want to have that impact. So, awesome. And that was 14 years ago. Wow, yeah. wow. And uh, how, how big are you guys now? Um, we're, I think, 24 or 25 people right now. So we, um, we're unusual that we always had a headcount cap of 50. Um, and so sometimes I kind of push that. I think I was doing the math in my head. is like, oh, it's a co-op, so they don't count as a full one, right? I can, like, have 51 <laughs> in here. But I, I did that to try to avoid the slippery slope of getting bigger and bigger and, and then losing options for what you're going to do if you want to keep a, a local independent company. So um, when the game industry had... Uh, the crash um, that happened a few years ago is good because your financial exposure is less um, than if you were like a 300-person company and you were trying to weather that. You're a little bit more agile because it's kind of built into your fabric. It also means you can't ever go past the relationship-based culture of a company. Um, so that was also part of the reasoning behind that cap is to keep us into relationship-based, mission-focused um, company. So was, is, was that approach uh, and that strategy to stay small the way you thought about it in the beginning? Uh, yes. And, and you've maintained that. So you've talked about some of the advantages to that. Have there been opportunities where maybe some venture capital person came and knocked on your door and said, hey, we'd like to invest $10 bucks to make this bigger and blah, blah, blah. And well, how, how, do you, how do you deal with those? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not against investment, but for first playable productions, especially when I started, many of our initial relationships with um, companies we were working with, um, acquisition was brought up very quickly, much more quickly than I thought, because I'm like, I don't even really have a company yet, so why are they um, bringing this up? So I'd started 
um, early on in all relationships, just saying we're not we're not on a path to acquisition. Um, partly just so then we don't end up in this awkward conversation, but also um, so they understood that we weren't going to disappear and be bought by someone they might see as a competitor. Mm. So I, I think the interesting thing, and remember I'm an engineer, so I like problem solving, and some, sometimes I just create problems for myself to solve. And uh, <laughs> like a I, I think one of them was if you have a, a size limit, everyone wants to have a bigger impact. So if you've limited the size, you're forced to think about how can I have a bigger impact without getting bigger, which to me is a really interesting problem to solve because it means that you can't do everything yourself. Like as a company, you have to transform into empowering other companies, um, empowering your partners, um, trying to think of ways you can impact without getting bigger because usually the default approach is that you have to get bigger to have bigger impact. And I, I just wanted to hold that variable constant and explore the other solutions that you get when you have a constraint like that. So it is uh, certainly affected a lot of things we do, like the games and education conferences out of like, well, we can only make so many games, but what if we can help empower educators to learn about how to use games and technology? Um, a lot of our relationships with other companies are coming out of that. We're not trying to do what they're doing. We're not trying to do everything. We're trying to find partners um, that we work with. Or when we work with clients, big customers like Disney, we want to behave as if we were part of Disney. Um, we're not trying to, you know, go and become a, a separate, you know, competitive industry, although being competitive Disney would be rather um, outrageous. <laughs> but it sounds like you, like you really know who you are. You know who you are as a person, but you know who you are as a company and what fits first label and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it is always a challenge because one thing I find is that um, we always, we're very motivated to have that impact and help out. It can take us out of our wheelhouse, so we can end up um, doing things that we would not have taken on that's not in our core skill set only because this other company needs that. And uh, I, do, I do make an attempt to send them away to find other people, be like, this is what you need, now go find somebody who does that. But on occasion, companies have come back and said, we, we can't find anybody, can you really help us out? So we've done some really interesting projects as a result of not having too tight a grip, but I still try to Is the poetry people. one one of them, the William Shatner? Oh, that, yeah, that was, uh, that was just an interesting serendipity of something that came out. This William Shatner game idea came out of RIT. A student at RIT had this concept, and they had to find a developer to work with. So tell them uh, what it was. It was kind of funny. Um, kind yeah, of and it's still out there, so feel free to download. I believe it's probably free right now. <laughs> so it's uh, over seven years old now, but it's a William Shatner-based game where it's like magnetic poetry. You know those little word packs where you can make poems on your refrigerator or door? So you basically have a set of words. You can arrange them, and then he will say it. So... <laughs> His articulation style, being full of pauses, is ideal for that, right? There's probably a lot of other people, well, maybe technology is almost at a point you could do the blending that was needed, but he recorded every word with three different levels of emphasis, so you can kind of choose your level of emphasis, write your poems, and you can video and send it to your friends and, and family, so that was, uh, it was a fun, adventurous game. He's a very interesting person to work with because he has unexpected um, boundaries, like you think that he has no shame, right? He has no... Uh, I, this is being recorded, so eventually he'll hear this and actually agree with me, I think. Right? You see the advertisements he does. He's not shy about doing things, or, um, but there's fine lines about what he considers to be too much. So we, a lot of those... He actually does have a line okay. somewhere. There is a line. There is a line, and it's not clear, but it's in, <laughs> clear in his head. And you basically just, you know, come up with ideas, and you can do, like, 
lots of them, and a bunch of them you can't. So, um, and that idea also, um, like a lot of game ideas, you don't know until you have something that's playable. So the concern of any celebrity is like, oh, somebody could put words in my mouth. Um, but once he saw it working, um, then he no longer had that concern at all, and we were able to do a lot more with those word packs. So but, one of the things I found interesting in our, we had a, you know, we always do pre conference calls with our speakers is that you don't have an extra strategy. Now, everybody here, most of the people have an extra strategy. You don't have an extra strategy. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem, I guess. <laughs> I, Why it's is that? A, so the traditional um, high-tech industry exit strategies would be some type of sale, strategic sale or investment um, path. And uh, as you were hearing, this first playable, I was trying to to a large degree with this company, do something that was a different way. Like, let's take a different path just so you know that there's a variety. So if you're a kid in business school, you know there's not just one approach you need to take with your company. So it takes a few companies to take the path that nobody else is taking, um, which is the staying small and not taking on investment and not pursuing um, acquisition. So originally I have, um, for quite a while, had the ideas like, well, the exit strategy not that it's so much an exit strategy, but the sustainability strategy would be like an employee-owned company because the heroes in my small small business perspective would be engineering services firms, um, Dick Zandry. Does anybody know Dick Zandry? He's like an amazing person. It's a tone that... over there. <laughs> it's, uh, he ran a construction firm in uh, Cahos, and I had the pleasure of working with him with a school building that I was involved in as my like second hobby job. But um, those uh, people who lead small businesses that are the fabric of our community, many of those businesses do sustain and or become employee-owned or something like that. So that was kind of my um, initial thinking. I have uh, more recently come to realization that that's probably not very practical because in the in a high-tech industry, it's very volatile, and those employees would have to be very risk tolerant to deal with the downs as well as the ups. And if they were that risk tolerant, they'd probably be running their own company. So uh, I haven't quite figured out what the, the path is, but it's, uh, you know, when you, when you give, yourselves, um, give yourself a challenge like that, you don't, there may not be an answer. You may just might find out that one aspect of what you're doing doesn't work, and maybe there's a reason everybody else is doing it the other way. So uh, I haven't actually come to a conclusion. But with my accident last year, I was like, huh, this is, you know, I should think about mortality once in a while. <laughs> what happens next? Well, that that is an exit strategy. <laughs> Maybe not exactly. a preferred one. Exactly. But I think while you were saying that, I, I I think one part of the challenge is that all we read about are exits, right? That's what's yes. in the paper. And there's so many businesses, very successful, that have no exit, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You employ a bunch of people. People make a living, and that's. That's fabulous. Yeah. So I think we have to be careful. You know, it's just like you read a lot about venture capital. Everyone should get venture capital. Everyone should get venture capital. Well, that's not true. <laughs> it's, it's appropriate for a very small number of actual companies that start. So I think this is refreshing to hear this, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you here. I do remember within the first few months of my company starting, I was still in the RPI Incubator Center, and I was just struggling with that same thing because I, you know, I'm a good student at GE. <laughs> I, I I've learned a lot about business. Like I've, I've learned all these things, and they're ingrained to a large degree. So when you start trying to go against the rules that everybody's taught you, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. And uh, I was struggling with the concept that I, community service is important because I want to make sure that this business has impact 
on the community, and I'm very involved in boards. So I'm sure it was a situation where I'm like, I'm supposed to be 100% dedicated to my company, but I also have this Montessori school board that's taking a lot of hours every day. So, um, so what do I do? Do I just stop doing that or not? And I remember thinking at that time is every company can be finite. I mean, every company is finite. Coming from GE, it's hard to imagine. At that time, it's hard to imagine GE is finite, but the last couple of years, I have considered it more as a possibility. So I just thought, well, at that time, I just kind of thought to myself, it's like every company is finite, so what's, not, what's important isn't how many years that the company exists, but what is the impact? And the impact is your employees. What do they go on and accomplish? Um, your community, what were you able to get started in your community? Who were you able to affect? Who will then affect the future? And really that is much bigger than just the finite lifespan of the company. Then again, you know, I, at this point, being more experienced, like the, the end of a company is, is never very clear either. So it's not like you just have a, right. a convenient door. Now, who do you, so who do you talk to? I think at the CEO level, um, are you part of an organization, or do you just have friends, or who do you talk to to bounce those ideas off of? Do you have mentors, and you know, to make those decisions? Say, when everyone else is going this direction, and I don't really feel like that's the direction that we need to go. Who hmm. do you? Do you just go with your own gut instinct, or do you? <laughs> Well, I, I am involved in a number of peer groups that have been tremendously helpful, and I joined those later in my process with First Viable. Um, when I started the company, um, I would I think I probably was more um, counter to that. In fact, I didn't have a board partly because I didn't want to have a board I had to listen to, which is, doesn't make a lot of sense now because now I appreciate the benefits that a board would bring that you don't bring yourself even, or even if you have peer networks, it's not going to bring to you. But at the time, I had a lot of experience with boards, and I had a lot of experience with business advice, and a lot of what I was doing was pretty firmly guided by doing the opposite of what everybody had told me to do because I've gotten a lot of feedback at, starting at GE that you're too idealistic. This is not business. You can't go into business and have these idealistic attitudes. And we'd even have debates, does idealistic equal naive or not? <laughs> Things like that. So I had I'd had a lot of um, interactions where I was getting feedback to try to follow the line. So when I started the company, it was, it was partially just like, well, I'm just not going to follow those things, and I'm going to try to see if it's not possible. Like, is it possible to have a company based on ideals, um, or is it not? You know, maybe they're right, maybe I'm right. So I think with First Playable, I found it's definitely possible. What I learned very quickly is by identifying your ideals and pursuing those ideals, yes, you have to have a market purpose. You have to have be satisfying some need that somebody needs out there. But I got a lot of resonance. It certainly affects who we work with. There's a whole set of clients that would never work with us because I'm very upfront about what we believe and what we're trying to accomplish. But there are a lot of people who work with us, I'm sure, partly because of that, because we're aligned with what their ideals are. Um, but I did, I did also, as role models, um, have small business leaders that I look to as role models, even if I didn't specifically ask them for um, suggestions or advice. I, and I had the fortune of being a G for a lot of years where I did have great management and leadership where I could kind of, you know, it's like, oh, that was cool. I should try to, you know, follow what that person did. So yeah. let me let me build on that a little bit. Yeah. So your path to being a founder and a CEO is, is not what I would say typical, right? You went got a PhD. Uh, you know, we read about CEOs who fundamentally drop out of school and start their businesses, right? So you stayed extra long. Yeah. And, and then you went to GE Research, right, which is a big corporation. Mm -hmm. and, and so talk about 
the value that you got out of those experiences of, of you know, getting a PhD and then working at a large corporation where you, you were exposed to different things and then deciding to, to go out on your own? Yes, I'll start with the, um, the second one because it's probably faster. I mean, GE, I consider an alma mater, like another college I went to. Um, I was the type of employee who volunteered for every single training opportunity there was. Um, I also constantly questioned everyone there, including the senior VP. I was the most obnoxious, outspoken employee you can imagine. As a, as a manager and a boss and a leader, I now appreciate that because you just need somebody to question you. Right? As long as they're not being rude about it, you need somebody to ask the questions because you have an audience and nobody's asking the questions that you need somebody to ask because you don't know what people don't know out there. But they were very um, tolerant and encouraging and probably ruined me for a whole different type of leadership um, <laughs> at some point because I did not learn deference at all there. Um, but I learned a lot about business and finance and you know, GE's a pretty intense company, has a lot of great training opportunities. Um, and, and so I think that was amazing going into small business, except when you go into small business, you realize that none of that exists. Now you're operating without a net, and now you got to like do with like tiny little minuscule parts of that, which is what I brought to Vicarious Visions. Um, in terms of my school, um, I was actually a horrible student. <laughs> I graduated with a 2.57 GPA, but that's because in anthropology I had all A's, so I brought up my electrical engineering um, GPA. So as an undergrad, I was um, more involved in community service. I didn't really go to classes. I had three Girl Scout troops. <laughs> I was an Alpha Phi Omega doing community service every weekend. I was the ambulance driver there, and so literally I didn't go to class, which is great as a parent of teenagers, because I would be like, well, you don't want to be like your mom, right, so you better go to school. <laughs> so, um, so I only ended up at GE because I was, like, unqualified for another job, and uh, they were looking for people for the lab, and so someone there who knew a friend um, for some reason saw that I had potential, I don't know why, um, and I was hired as just, like, a, a lab rat. Like, not through the hiring system, but as a lab helper, you know, like a student employee, like I hire myself. Um, and so it took me less than a year of being there to realize I had to go back to school <laughs> because I realized very quickly I learned nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't win any arguments if I didn't know anything because I was surrounded by pretty obnoxious people. And I hated not being able to win arguments because I didn't know anything. And so within a year, I was writing a letter back to RPI to ask them to give me a second chance. And that's why I went back to grad school. But I was always grad school part-time. I was working full-time, grad school on the side, going back and forth between Schenectady and Troy. And then my daughter was born halfway through that, so my two courses two per semester went to one course per semester. And so it took me 10 years to get through grad school. Um, so what did I learn from that for my company? Well, I definitely didn't choose the easy path. <laughs> and ultimately, it worked out. So I learned persistence. And, and I, all along that way, I was doing things like not the way you're supposed to. Um, I, did, I did learn that there's some things you should do, like go to school, go to class, take notes, find out what your test score was, which amazingly I didn't do as an undergrad. Um, so, there, so I learned how to follow a system, which is important at GE as well. If you want to do well, you have to learn the system, learn the organization, and learn how that system works to do well in that system. And the same is true of school. 
Um, so as a result, though, I think I, I am very sympathetic to the students who work for me who are co-ops. They're still juniors or sophomores. They may not have figured out entirely whether they're going yet. So I tend to you know, love to provide opportunity for students that might really crystallize in their mind what they want to do the way I was waiting for that to happen to me. Because not until I worked at GE did I kind of crystallize what I wanted to do, even if it was like, I just want to win some arguments because I want to know more about this stuff so I you know, can prove why they're wrong. So I want to go back to the small business for a second. Um, so one of the challenges in a small business is every individual is important and critical. Mm-hmm. And, and you had an accident a little while ago, so you're out of commission for a period of time. So what sort of leadership and management lessons did you learn out of that in, in having a small business? And you were out of commission for how long? Just to give a, give a little bit of a backdrop on that, because it was, it was not just like a little accident. It was kind of a serious accident. Yeah, so I, it was like a year and a half ago in January. I was in a severe car accident, and um, somehow it drove into the path of a minivan, and my whole left side was... Um, impacted, so I rebuild lots of things. And you're doing okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm very, I mean, in some ways I'm unlucky that I was in a car accident, but I'm very lucky, as one of my cousins pointed out, because I don't have any repercussions, so you have to look at everything in both sides of the coin. Um, so that was, uh, fortunately, I was within 20 minutes of a trauma center. I had just done a game to teach emergency physicians to transfer patients to trauma centers more quickly. And it wasn't... You were testing a, it out. <laughs> that was the first thing that came to mind when I became you know, aware of my situation. One of the first things I thought is like, I could be like the case for like three of the categories of why you have to... <laughs> we would have data, right? We could put me in the game. Um, because I obsess a little bit about these things. But I never really fully understood until that. Ironically, even though I'd spent like four months on the game, I really hadn't internalized like why it's important to get to a trauma center. So they have magical technologies, a quick answer um, to that. But I was then in the hospital for about six weeks, I think it was, then got finally got well enough I could be transferred to Albany Med, was there for another about four weeks and then home, but then dealing with some severe pain. Um, so it wasn't until like mid-May that I was to the point I could um, start engaging back and doing something closer to my job. That being said, two days after the accident, I was doing payroll from the hospital bed. Um, so I was still working um, and got scolded by my nurses quite a bit. But I'm like, I have a really mean boss. <laughs> I have to do this stuff. Um, but what I did learn, my, my team back at the office, since we're a small company, um, we don't we have generally a rule that people should do things, right? You shouldn't, like, not do something because it's somebody else's job. Um, we're kind of a team, and we kind of step up and do things that needs to be done. And so the team really did pull together, um, not just to figure out what to do at the company side, but even thinking about things, oh, like, the Toby's dogs need to be dogs out, because, of course, all my family came out to the hospital. So, um, so they did a fantastic job of that. And I think that's just encouragement. And generally, even though we didn't have a plan for that, the team was able to um, respond, organize themselves, and feel empowered that they could move ahead and start doing things. Also, everybody knows my password, so I don't know if I should advise that, but (laughs) that certainly helped a bit um, to make sure that people could pick up and um, get things done. Um, But it was, uh, what the company didn't get was sales in marketing, didn't really have anybody um, looking at the finances. So although the company 
was surviving, it was kind of surviving in, in the red and uh, wasn't going to be sustainable very long. So actually, when I another thought I had right when I first realized where the situation I was in was like, the company is going to go out of business. There's nothing I can do. And I, I felt relief at that because at that point, I was just like, it's just accepting the fact that you're in a serious situation. And I put out of my mind worry about it. And, um, and it was still something I didn't allow myself to get too engaged into whether the company would survive until later in the spring. And then middle of May, um, I decided, all right, I've got to do more than, my, like, I was maybe working four hours a day or something. But, you know, I'm going to go in and fight for it. And up until that point, I really hadn't committed to, like, the company is going to survive because I was just trying to survive myself at that point, figure out how to get um, medical cannabis and important things like that. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of other things you have to worry about in this, uh, in this world, in the state specifically. Um, but then in middle of May, I was able to re-engage, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to see over the next couple months. Like, go check over the next couple months, can I turn things around? So um, end of last year was really more of a turnaround, and happily, things started working well. So by the end of last year, it's like, okay, I think the equation still works. It still seems like we're providing a needed service. Um, but right, it did give me thanks to like, oh, we don't really have an exit plan, and we don't. I, I have key man insurance, but guess what? It doesn't really help if you're incapacitated. Like you have to literally die before key man insurance would kick in. Oh, so, and if you think about it, it's Marshall probably... Sterling, could you guys? <laughs> <laughs> right. So think think about that. Is is CEO? Isn't it more likely you might have a stroke? You might be incapacitated. Isn't that more likely than you might just keel over and be completely dead? Um, so that's given. That was a shock to me because I always thought of key man insurance as being something that would cover. Something like that, but obviously not very educated on that. I want to. I have a question. I really do want to ask you, yes. but I'm going to save it for the end because we always end at one o'clock sharp. Oh right, right. Um, I, I even had to that. ask Tony to speed it up one time. Not a good career move to do that. But um, any questions out here? I'm sure there's a bunch, but then there's got to be at least one question. Yes, Richard. So, so Toby, as you progress your company and the gaming industry in the capital region seems to be so the micro economy is growing for us. Um, how is the attraction and retention of labor in that field currently for the for our local economy, in your experience? Great question. Um, well, I I don't want to use this as a negative term, but sometimes I do think of myself as a farm team for Google, and uh, <laughs> we're like training training kids up for the show, and they're going to go get like super high salary working. I've had employees go to um, Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, Microsoft, um, and you know, and get the type of um, salary distribution that we would do at GE, right? We would pay our A players really high um, in order to attract and retain them. So I, I can't fight that battle because I don't have um, clients or work that could support that. So, But we do have locally more job opportunities that are associated with that. So there's Vicarious Visions, which I helped make into a sustainable company that could be acquired. Um, then Agora Games, who is across the hall from me, in the incubator center, I got them into video games because I knew there was a project at Vicarious Visions that would be dropped unless I could get somebody else to do it because it involved computer net networks, and I was the only one at VV who wanted to do network stuff, and Agora did that. I'm like, okay, Agora, Tony Hawk needs this project. Then they got by, bought by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers was considering other locations like Boston to put their northeast 
um, facilities. So at the time, I'm like, we can't lose like an employer from Troy. I know Warner Brothers. They've been a client in Hollywood. They need a really cool space. You know, no offense to this space, but in, in Troy, the coolest space is the one I have, the huge ballroom that cool I occupied. So um, but you could make this place really cool. Too. <laughs> but, but at the time, I didn't have the space, but I did have the ballroom. So um, I proposed to Steve Flannery that Warner Brothers take that portion and could renovate back and uh, and you know, keep them in town, because that was really important to me to keep those jobs, because I think that people do need multiple companies to work for. And then I, I essentially did very similar with Dunn Studios with the other half of that building. So um, I think, it, and to do that, I had to make the case that, um, yes, it's not 80,000 square feet of space in a big tech park space somewhere, but in Troy, the technical technology community works together, and people will move around and make space in that building. It's a huge building. So, like right now, Troy Webb is moving to the Quackenbush building so that Dellen can have more space, and we all kind of shift around as a community to make that still be a vibrant place. And that was kind of the argument I had to make to get them to not, you know, move out out of the city and into another, you know, more typical space there. So I, I, I think from an employee standpoint, people have a lot more options to not have to go out of town to get a much higher um, salary. The, uh, the, the gap in terms of compensation is that much larger for the big companies than we can possibly pay in this area? Is yeah, I think it's uh, the big gap is partly, for me, the big gap is partly because we do social impact work. Um, so it's our, our clients don't have the same profit stream. <laughs> so some of them, Disney obviously, obviously does, but then a lot of what we're doing, we're trying to do games that make change and are experimental games, and so that just fundamentally that's not as highly compensated. Hopefully it is compensating as far as the intrinsic reward. Um, but ultimately some people eventually may just need to go for... I mean, one of the games paid. they're making is actually to help kids um, be able to rebuff peer pressure from like vaping, vaping. And, and all that. I think it's awesome. So... Um, so you received the RPI Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Was that this year? Um, yes, last fall. Last fall. Last October. And I thought this was interesting because Toby felt like she didn't deserve the award. And I hate to get personal, but yeah. you felt like, you know, I, you, know we, you had to rethink success, even though going into this business, business, you had already rethought what would be success for you for the business, and it wasn't going to necessarily be what's on the ledger. But you still had where you were. I'll, I'll let you say it. But you were applying things to your to your world in another way. Like what success really is. So how have you redefined success? And I'm really glad you got the award because you deserve it. But <laughs> and that I accepted it. And that you accepted it. Um, yeah. So I brought this up to Rick because one of the we were just talking about interesting. What have you learned? What are interesting learnings that you've had recently? And and some of it is kind of intertwined with the the business experience, some of it related to the accident. So I, I had heard from RPI, I think it was beginning of March. So I was still, you know, I still couldn't, I was still not able to walk. Like I was, I think, not even quite in a wheelchair yet at that point. And so when they called and told me, like I was not feeling very successful just physically at that point, right? You're like, oh, really? So I just barely survived a car accident and you're going to, you know, bestow this award upon me. But the other thing I realized, because then I was recovering, I still hadn't said yes for probably four months I didn't say yes to it, because I just didn't feel successful. I think you sort of mentioned 
an aspect of that is there's so much focus on exits. I began to realize, because I, you know, I go look at, first thing I do is like any other women got it because I am used to being the only woman that's chosen for something, and I do have a psychological <laughs> judgment when I know that I'm a token, even if well-meaning. And uh, so it's like, oh, great, there's some other women um, there, but everybody listed here has done like some huge exit, and I'm not in that category. So when I looked at the list of people, I just didn't see myself as being um, in that category. So it was interesting, and the reason I brought it up to Rick is that going through that process, I had lots of very smart friends and fellow CEOs, you know, tell me, like, don't be silly. <laughs> like, just think about this. But um, part of it in talking with my friends is I began to realize is that even though I have all these stated goals and objectives and I've run my company this way, way back in my brain cells, something is still evaluating me based on whether or not I did an exit. And I'm still actually inherently measuring myself by a degree of a measure of success that I keep on saying I'm not doing and I'm running my company like I'm not doing. And it wasn't until that award I started to be aware that how much socialization can affect you and affect the way you're measuring yourself, even if you think consciously that you're not. Um, so in that process, it was great experience for me to get the award because it has allowed me to kind of work through and remember when I founded the company and think about the things that we have done and um, get out of that numbers. You know, remember, the company was losing money at the time, too. Like in March, I also assumed the company wasn't going to survive that year. You also had a major client, LeapFrog, go out of business. LeapFrog had gone out of business like two years before that. So when they offered it to me, I'm like, I could be doing a talk my company could be out of business. <laughs> like, like, do they even, like, should they know this? Like, this could be a bad thing. So, um, but I'm, I'm happy I didn't. And as I went through, it was just, uh, you know, hope remind me is to try to, you know, be more conscious of saying, well, if you really believe these things, um, just make sure they're not affecting your self-worth as well when you end up in the, those situations. I, I tend to, you know, be the type of person who doesn't like compliments and awards anyway. But So, so I have, I have a, an idea. I think your next game should be helping CEOs get over the socialization aspects of having to have an exit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like vaping. It's the same idea, right? right? That's sort of a social peer pressure, peer pressure thing, yeah. right? right? But there's, right. there's a whole nother... There's a whole nother... Always have ideas. You have lots of ideas. There. Consider, considering the options. Yeah, the great thing about the vaping game is that that is ultimately what I had to do for the pain meds for the cannabis. Is I like, oh, and I have a vape vaping device. Now I really understand our game, but um, <laughs> uh, unlike opioids, the nice thing about that is that it's not addictive, so I, I had absolutely no interest in continuing, but um, vaping that kids do is nicotine. Right. So it is addictive, and so that's why it is that epidemic. And maybe there's an epidemic of um, um, Yancey Stickler, the founder of Kickstarter, has really great messaging right now that he's really focused on um, the way society is focused on financial maximization above all else. And he's even more articulate, has a lot of great data points, really echoing the same uh, beliefs that I have, is the focus on dollars and financial maximization um, leaves a lot of things uh, uncovered, right? I, I think every town has experienced that, where companies make decisions. Like, I wouldn't have located my company in Troy if I was looking at financials, because it costs more. I had to pay for parking. Like, I had to pay more money to be in downtown Troy, but Troy is far better off that I was able to move there and, and then convince a lot of other people to move there as well. Awesome. That's the one o'clock time. Not yet. I got one minute. <laughs> Give it up for Toby Sonia. Awesome.
So, Mike, I thought that was really good. You know, one of the things that really struck out to me is this notion of being mission-driven. And it's not just about growth. It's not just about getting acquired or an exit. You know, oftentimes, all we hear about and all we read about are these great exits because, you know, they're big, they're flashy, and that's what makes the, the publications. And uh, there are lots and lots of business opportunities out there to build beautiful, very nice, sustainable businesses um, that, you know, make you a very nice living. You can enjoy life and you can sort of uh, have your passion combined with your business. And I think this is this is a great example of that. What do you think, Mike? I agree, Bill. And, you know, I'm interested to pick your brain on this a little bit. So when you think about companies that have made these splashy exits where they've done an IPO or they've had a they've been acquired by a, a, a another company, a bigger company, and the founder gets a big payout, right? Hits pay dirt. The initial investors are rewarded. A lot of times, I think the local economy gets screwed on these deals, right? The the, the local employees, the local tax base where the business was founded. And my hunch is, is that it's better for local economic development when the business, when there is no exit strategy and the business stays and grows and continues to employ people and to pay taxes and to contribute to the local economy in a nice, consistent way. How many of your friends that have had cash out that you know that have cashed out, do they stay living in the same place? Or how many of them move, right? And they take their money and they invest it and spend it outside of the community. So I think this is interesting just from her story, but I think from a big picture standpoint, should we be encouraging more people to not have exit strategies? Should we be teaching that, look, if you really want to have impact, right, stay put, plan on sticking around for a while and putting down roots in the local community? What do you think? So I, I think um, a couple of points. One is we need to realize that if you take outside investment, particularly venture capital, then you're going to have an exit of some sort because Have that's how yep. venture capitalists make, they make their money. money. Yep. It's the only way. So, so you, have to, you have to be very careful if you go down that road because if you go down that road, you're going to have an exit one way or another. Um, so think about it long and hard before you, before you take outside capital. And by that, I mean venture capital or equity financing for the most part. Because you really are setting in stage the ultimate exit. Right. That's right. And and there are other sources of capital if you want more patience and if you want your strategy to be longer term. Right. That's right. That's right. Angel and investors are oftentimes uh, not interested in an exit. Uh, they they'd be happy with uh, a, a dividend check every once in a while, mm-hmm. uh, as an example. Especially um, when they're a local group, right? And a lot of angel investors belong, like some of the ones you're involved in, are local groups, and they want to see. They're doing it in part because they want to see the community thrive. Absolutely, absolutely right, Mike. They're not doing it for their own personal gain. They've already made a ton of money, and this is their way of giving back. And um, so, I think angel investors are a great source for this type of financing. Uh, yeah, and a great takeaway is I think that people that pitch angels don't always understand that, right? They're like, "Oh, I'm going to get you your money back, and da 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 da, and this is the rate, and da 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 return." I think some of them might be better off served if you say, look, I want to help this community grow, right? And I want your capital, but I want only if you're going to be patient and if you share my vision of creating X number of jobs and more of the tax base and own property and things like this, that that might resonate with some angel investors. And I don't think we train young entrepreneurs anyways about this approach and this mindset. I I agree. And, And you have to remember that when there's an exit, and what I mean by an exit, you get acquired by some other company. 
somewhere between 60 to 70% of the times that the, the acquired company, the smaller one that just got bought, is going to get relocated closer to the mothership. And that's just the way it happens. Um, so, um, again, that, again, doesn't help the community, doesn't help the region that you're in. So I think you want to uh, uh, think about that long and hard. And I think Toby's approach here was, was really interesting. And it was a very refreshing sort of thing to hear uh, because oftentimes you don't hear that. And, and I, th- I thought that was really cool. Uh, I think the other thing that sort of struck me uh, when you have a small business is uh, she was in a pretty serious car accident and she shared that, uh, you know, with the audience there. I think one of the first times she's done that. And so she was out of commission for for like nine months uh, and really totally out of commission for like the first three months. And so you got to think about these things when you have a small business Everyone plays a critical role. You, you don't have extra capacity. So think about it not just as a founder, if something happens to you, who's your backup, but you got to think about that in almost every employee you have. You got to think about cross-training folks. You got to think about sharing responsibilities because unlike a large company where you have a few thousand employees, you know, if one person leaves, eh, you hardly even notice it. Uh, but in a small company, every person is critical and important. So most of the times we don't think of those things. That's why these notions of cross-training folks, uh, job sharing, uh, whatever words you want to use there. Succession planning, even planning for these things. Some companies do this. That's right, because people will leave in different ways. (laughs) Sometimes they leave Mm -hmm. temporarily, but sometimes they leave permanently. And that's just yeah. Look at Fiat at Fiat Chrysler, right? I mean, they their their CEO died, and it really caused a big challenge, right? That's right. Um, and it was very sad, but it means big companies and small companies, these things happen. Happen all the time. And and so you got to think about that. And I, I think a lot of small company entrepreneurs don't think about those things. And, and you know, Toby was saying for a while there, she was saying, okay, we're just going to close the shop down. And, and uh, you know, but but she didn't and, and pulled through all of that stuff. And, and it's turned out well, but... Uh, that's another good takeaway lesson that I that I garnered from that conversation we had. Yeah, I thought this was great. I thought, and especially these two things that we really both picked up on weren't even the main themes in some ways. They were kind of the underlining story, main really cool business model, really cool social mission, really hitting a market that's important and dealing with all the ethical things that you have to do if you're going to market to kids, right? Um, has developed really cool customers and partners and really it's a fantastic local economic development story. But I really like these two underlying lessons that weren't quite at the surface, right? Of not having an exit strategy and, you know, Bad things can happen at any point in time. And what's your strategy if you're an entrepreneur to, to for the company to withstand um, an event where somebody unexpectedly can't do the job anymore? Yeah. You know, one other quick point, Mike, before we wrap this up. Uh, Toby is very much engaged, not just in the local business community and the sort of the regional uh, economy, but also the industry. And if you if you listen to what, what she was talking about, a lot of her opportunities and a lot of her business has come from that networking and engagement she has within the industry and within the regional community. So that's another really important lesson. Oftentimes, you'll see entrepreneurs, um, particularly I see this in tech startups, 
where it's, you know, engineers like me who tend to be oftentimes more hermit-like than social creatures. <laughs> and, and, and they figure, well, my product's so good, people are just going to come. Uh, and man, you have to be engaged with your community. You have to be engaged with the industry. And those connections are the things that oftentimes, uh, amazingly serendipitously, will lead to wonderful, fabulous things. And uh, I think that was another key takeaway that that I garnered from my conversation with Toby. I love that point, Bela, because one thing to remember is everybody says, oh, networking, networking, networking. But there's two types of networks, right? And one is your local community network and the other is within your industry. And you have to reach those people in very different ways. And you have to be conscious about it because I've seen people that only go and work with one group and not the other. And you're missing another big part of the, the, the network effect that you can get, both from gaining new customers and gaining new employees and gaining new suppliers and developing new ideas. So fantastic point, Bela, and good, a good takeaway for everybody to either start developing those two different networks or kind of do a check and see if you need to adjust the balance um, in terms of are you dealing with industry trade groups? Are you going to conferences? Um, are you keeping in touch with the people who are making decisions and, and leading the way in, 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 in your industry versus, hey, are you making sure that you know the local suppliers and the local employment base and the and the and the local real estate agent and the local bank that you're you're making sure that you're keeping those networks um, strong as well. Right, and a key word there is engaged with that industry, right? And if you listen to Toby, she said, you know, she had her list of people she wanted to interact with, she wanted to meet these people, and have a conversation with them. So it's it's not just go, going to an event and just showing up is not being engaged. That's mm-hmm. just attending an event. You got to be engaged. You got to volunteer. They need to know who you are, right? right. Or not just clicking, uh, be part of my network on LinkedIn, right? That's that right. initial click doesn't mean anything. That's right. Right? How do you start a conversation? And people are willing. I, you know, I try to teach the young entrepreneurs that I work with. People are surprisingly willing to talk with you and have a conversation and to answer questions and to give you some guidance. But you have to ask. They're not going to come and find you. They're not going to knock on you know, your dorm room door or your apartment and say, oh, Bela, I heard you might be interested in my business. And can I please sit you down and buy you an ice cream and share some stories with you? You have to go seek these things out, young or old, right? doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. So what do you say we wrap this one up here, Mike? Let's wrap it up. So audience, thanks for joining us again in uh, yet another podcasting adventure. Uh, we hope you found the last uh, hour or so interesting and thought-provoking. As usual, we have two small requests. First, if you have questions or comments about what we've discussed or suggestions for future topics or potential guests, by all means, get in touch with us. Email is the best way, bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And of course, if you like what you're doing, it always helps us expand our reach by hitting subscribe or like on your podcast app um, and even be radical and consider writing us a quick review. Um, As always, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So that's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. Uh, We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. So signing off uh, from here in my new retirement gigs inside my house, my little office I've set up, my little studio. Uh, in upstate New York uh, on a beautiful sunny day. Hey, Mike, see you next week. All right, Bela, don't work too hard. And uh, as always, greetings and uh, and uh, what's the right word in German? Grüße uh, from Münster, Germany. And have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.com.